Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and I'm joined as always in studio by President Wyatt. Hi, Scott. How are you? Terrific, Steve. Thank you. So this is the last of our summer 2019 book club. And I have to say that in my own little romance-loving heart, (laughs) <laughs> this has actually been the one that I've been looking the most forward to. So, so uh, uh, anyway, we have a special guest with us, as we have throughout the summer, to discuss each of the books. Why don't you take a minute to introduce her? We're delighted to have Dr. Jean Barine with us. Dr. Barine, welcome. Thank you. Um, to say doctor is not saying enough. You're the dean of our College of Humanities and Social Sciences and a literature faculty member. And um, at SUU now for, what, a year, two years? Yeah, about 13 months. Yeah, more than a year. Yeah. Settled in. Everything's great. It is. It's great. <laughs> I, love, I love being here. Well, we love having you here. And today we're talking about one of the great novels that was written, actually, when was this? Like 1813 is when it was published? Uh, 180, yeah, it was published then, but it was probably written sometime between 1796 and about 1806. So more than 200 years ago. Still relevant today. Absolutely. Before we get started about this novel, why don't you tell us just a quick, just give us a brief introduction to your literature background. Okay. So I am actually an English ed specialist and uh, spent most of my career actually teaching people how to be high school and middle school English teachers. And I have loved that um, immensely. And one of the major parts of my teaching background has been um, getting to teach people how to use literature effectively in the classroom. So I have worked with my students over the years in teaching everything from young adult lit to the classics. And in the case of Pride and Prejudice, which we're going to be talking about today, I've actually used that in conjunction with young adult literature to help my students, uh, my college students, understand how we can move from young adult literature to classic literature and often back again to better understand what some of our classic authors really were um, helping us to think through. And so Pride and Prejudice has been long one of my favorites, both um, as a classroom teacher and as a college professor, using it as a model for how to do best practice in the classroom. Well, and it seems like Pride and Prejudice is one of the classics that is more familiar to the average person. I I would definitely agree with that. And I think um, a lot of that has to go to the fact that there have been some really um, fantastic movie and miniseries versions of it, um, especially the one connected to the BBC um, with Colin Firth and Jennifer Ely. And I think that has really left an impression on many um, many people who have seen it, both male and female, but I think given a lot of people an appreciation that then led them sometimes back to the book. 
Well, and, and that um, series you're talking about is pretty darn true. It is. It, it's, it's so accurate that there are times when I'm rereading the book that I can actually hear <laughs> Colin Firth's voice in my head as I'm reading through it. So, Can we start out with Jane Austen? Tell us who she was um, and um, some fun things about her. You know, my understanding is, and I, I could be wrong, but my understanding is, is that nobody really knew what she had written until she was dead. Actually, um, she had quite a bit come out during her lifetime um, in the latter years. She was the, the daughter of a, of a minister and um, one of the younger daughters, but definitely was very involved in her um, community's social scene. And that really gave her an insight as to um, how people interacted with each other. Um, also, she was herself, and I think this surprises people, a very outgoing, often flirtatious young woman who was, you know, basically friends with a lot of people, um, had her own little romantic um, mishaps that, uh, again, I think a lot of people are not aware of. There's this vision of Jane Austen as this this kind of poor woman who never married and, and maybe wasn't appreciated <laughs> enough by her family, but actually her family... Um, in particular, um, one of her brothers really appreciated her writing ability, and he actually helped her um, get published um, during probably the last, I would say, probably 10 to 12 years of her life. And um, he was kind of her liaison to publishers. Um, they didn't always know who Jane Austen was, um, because in the beginning, um, they kept it more quiet as to, to who she was. But um, she was known to many people as, as an author, and um, she relished, I, I think, that those opportunities. Uh, I think she would have liked to have done quite a bit more with her writing um, and to be more public about it. But again, the societal expectations of the time were limiting in that sense, um, and yet probably allowed her more private time to do the type of writing she needed to do to finish up um, the, the various novels that she worked on. Jean, what about the stories that she was hiding or writing that if somebody came in the house, she would cover it up? Um, she had a writing desk. She would, you know, put things away. But um, she was, I mean, and she was very meticulous about wanting to make sure that what she was writing was done well. Um, I think her sister Cassandra had some sense of what she was doing. They they were very open with each other and very much confidants um, in a number of ways. So much so that during a certain part of um, Austin's life, there were certain letters that she wrote to Cassandra that um, Cassandra actually um, burned um, upon Jane's death. Mm -hmm. But um, she she was. I mean, she kind of kept some of those things to herself, and yet there were so many um, opportunities to do um, role-playing and things like that with her siblings that growing up and with her nieces and nephews later on that um, I suspect they had some sense of, of some of her writing and what she was doing with it and where some of it came from. They were published anonymously at first, right? Right. And part of that was that women weren't supposed to be writers. That's very true. Um, and yet there were women during the time frame that um, Austin compared herself to who were being published. 
And um, I think in that way, she was um, very competitive and, you know, wanted to make sure that what she was writing um, could be held up against anything that was being written by any of these other uh, female authors, <laughs> well, as well as most of the male authors. But um, Well, that has borne out to be true, hasn't yes, it? Yes, absolutely. This book, the first title to this book, um, I think is a great um, way to s- talk about a piece of this that's significant, and that is First Impressions was the title, I think, that she suggested mm-hmm. before it became Pride and Prejudice. Right. Um, and it does seem like it's a book of unfortunate first impressions. Absolutely. That could also be described as pride and prejudice. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Disastrous first impressions. And, Absolutely. And, and a society that didn't allow, um, it, with such structured manners, that it didn't really allow for you to ease up on the first impression very easily. Exactly. It, it was difficult to erase that first impression because the interaction between men and women at the time was so tightly structured mm-hmm. that it was, and people didn't speak yeah. their minds frankly in the way we do today. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. So where do you put the pride and where do you put the prejudice? You know, I've had a lot of interesting conversations with students about that over the years. And I know in some cases, my own view has changed because um, I think when I first the first time I read Pride and Prejudice, and I have read it many times, um, the first time it was Mr. Darcy was was definitely the prideful one, and that uh, Elizabeth had certain prejudices against him. And then as you continue reading, you realize that she has a lot of pride in family and that his prejudices against that. And so um, I think they are both very much pride and prejudice um, consistently throughout as are so many of the characters in the book. Um, Mrs. Bennett, for example, I think alternates between being very proud of her family and just aghast at the fact that she has five daughters to marry off. And this is not an easy task. And they live in a smaller village and there just aren't enough, you know, really good men to go around. And by good, I mean men with money. And that was Mrs. Bennett's, you know, total focus. So she would alternate... Um, you know, when you go back and look at the book, sometimes in 10 pages, being very delighted by Mr. Darcy and then hearing something he would say and then her prejudice against him kicks in full force and she is totally disgusted with him and no child in her family would ever want to marry him. So, She's one of my favorite characters, <laughs> Mrs. Bennett. She, just, she is great. She is, she is solely focused on just the one thing and Absolutely. Uh, that, that whole when you when you have five daughters, tell me what else will occupy your thoughts. Uh-huh. You know that speech to her, one of her daughters is just. Yeah, uh, I, I think for for a lot of reasons. When you when you look at the limitations women actually had in terms of making any money, um, taking on certain roles, yep. just the fact that yeah, exactly the entailments. Yep. Yeah, it just was so difficult. And um, although you know my students routinely disparage Mrs. Bennett. Because she is Mrs. Bennett and some of the ridiculous <laughs> things she says, they do come to a little bit of, maybe not respect, but a little bit of grudging admiration for her by the end. Because by the end, um, you know, she's gotten three daughters wed and um, two of them are going to do re- very well by their husbands. So um, 
it's always interesting to really take a look at Mrs. Bennett and because she's got some of the best lines in the novel in terms of ones that make you kind of chuckle or go, oh my gosh, someone actually said that out loud. So I, I feel that same way about Mr. Collins. He's such a supercilious twit. Oh, absolutely. But uh, uh, he's one of my favorite, one of my favorite English characters because, yeah. because he just is so perfectly wonderful. He's yeah. <laughs> and, and just just worships his uh, you know Lady Catherine, his his patroness, and mm-hmm. I don't know, just he's wonderful in his awfulness. Well, let's see as we're running through some of these people. So Mr. Collins is a distant cousin, yes, who who stands to inherit because There's the no, Bennetsna had no no male heir. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When I was at law school, this was a subject that we studied a lot, which was the inheritance rights, property rights, and all these things. These states would stay together. and Anyway, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy that we don't live in that world today. Yes, yeah. agreed. Because I'm a third child, <laughs> <laughs> for one reason. Yeah, you, you would have been in bad shape. Mr. Wickham? Oh, Mr. You... Wickham, yes. You know, it, it's just, I was thinking earlier today a little bit about the, the Mr. Wickhams of the world, and we still have so many of them running around. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, you know, just the whole character who's a cad, who's charming, but you know he's manipulating people, and, and, and yet when you just see him on the page, the subtlety there around him is, is so well done. But, you know, that's something that um, so still exists today, and I think... Um, when you consider how people interact with each other, um, there there are so many Mr. Wickham's still around, and and uh, I'd like to think that we've that women have gotten savvier about the Mr. Wickham's of the world, but I'm not sure anyone can be more savvy about a <laughs> about a Wickham until they actually see them in action and and see the the trouble they cause. Well, it's it's just so much of human nature. They they Austin says throughout this book or the characters say throughout this book, how, how could someone this fair, how could someone yeah. this beautiful with this yeah. bearing, you know, be a cad? Yeah. And, and so as you, as you look at people who are blessed with that, uh, that kind of physical beauty, you realize that Wiccan and, and, and characters like him have uh, been, uh, for better or for worse, given a pass yeah. on a lot of things. And some people are, are, you know, are wonderful people that just also happen to be lovely people. Some people are terrible people that happen yeah. to be lovely people. Well, well, and then there's somebody like Mary Bennett too, who Mary would have been perfect for Mr. Collins. Yeah. You know, she has so much of the same attitudes yeah. with the religious beliefs. Yeah. yeah. And yet he doesn't give her a second look because she's not attractive yeah. or she doesn't have, you know, the beautiful eyes that Elizabeth does or the, you know, the aquiline nose that Jane does. I mean, <laughs> it's right. just, there's so many of those little pieces that I think are so perfectly done. Well, and our assumptions about people that we meet, um, first impressions, pride and prejudice. Um, Mr. Wickham starts out in the book with being a very, the first impression is very positive. The first impression of Mr. Darcy is very negative. Mm-hmm. And they flip. It's a, that's a great cultural um, reminder mm-hmm. thing to think about. So so walk us through the story just a little bit. I, there, I can't believe there would be listeners that are 
entirely unfamiliar with this story, but Mr. and Mrs. Bennett and their five daughters. And, and the book starts out with one of the great lines of literature. I just want to read that a minute, and then I'll do a little bit of plot. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. <laughs> and that sets the whole tone for the book. And then shortly after that, we meet the Bennett family. And there are five Bennett girls, as we've alluded to before, Mr. and Mrs. Bennett, who... Um, we get the sense probably fell in love because each found the other very attractive. Yep. And um, the attractiveness wore off fairly quickly for each of them for different reasons. Um, but at this point in their lives together, you know, probably 20-some years, because their oldest daughter is 20 at the time the book opens, um, Mr. Benefit, Mr. Bennett seems to tolerate. Um, Mrs. Bennett has a lot of complaints about... Um, her situation and what her future will entail. And so um, these five daughters are brought up knowing that um, at some level they're going to have to make good marriages to support their mother in the future um, and to also um, kind of have the type of lifestyle that they're used to. Um, the second daughter, Elizabeth in particular, is very smart, very witty, as the British would say, um, very good looking, not as kind as her older sister, never as mischievous as her youngest two sisters, um, and tends to look at the world in a very kind of clear-minded way, um, probably until she meets Mr. Darcy and um, thinks that her first impressions of him are correct. And um, in meeting Mr. Darcy and being kind of thrown together with him on a number of different occasions, has to actually think about her own perceptions of how she views her society, her family, how she views potential suitors, um, how she looks at those around her to really um, better understand that she too is capable of making mistakes and that some of her um, views of the world are more based on um, misguided loyalty than maybe what's actually going on. So we've got what, Jane, Lizzie, Mary, Kitty, um, and Lydia? Right. They all have a role in it, of course, but Elizabeth is the primary. Yes. Do you, do you think that knowing, knowing Austin's literature, as you do so well, is any one of those daughters in particular her voice, do you think? Um, or because I Mary's Mary's um, speeches are so different than the other daughters. I I I was saying to the president that I actually I had a very long car trip yesterday, and so to remind myself about this book, I listened to the whole book thirteen hours, and uh, and I was struck again at how different Mary's way of uh, describing the world and her surroundings were. Um, was that just, uh, and I remember thinking to myself to make sure to ask Jean, um, that because she was so strikingly different, I thought maybe that was, um, maybe that was Jane Austen's voice there for a second. But I, uh, have you given any thought to that? Uh, are there characters in here that seem more Jane Austen to you than others? You know, I, I hadn't thought as much about Mary, although as you bring it up, I, I think there was definitely an aspect of Jane Austen where she could take apart her different views of the world 
because I think many uh, scholars who have looked into, who have done research on Jane Austen would say that there's a lot of Jane Austen and Elizabeth Bennet, um, and that the, the playfulness and the, the use of language and her subtle flirtation, but knowing how far to take something and knowing when to step back from it, knowing when to be very practical, um, and yet wanting that great life, because Jane Austen herself turned down a marriage proposal that would have actually been very financially good for her and would have allowed her to live some aspects of her life with much more freedom than she had in her parents' home. But she did not, she first accepted him and then said no, because she knew she just couldn't live that life. It would be a lie to herself. So I think there are aspects of Jane in Mary, in Elizabeth, um, those in some ways would be the two characters that I think the most. There might be some people who would actually say that some aspects of Lydia with the the flirtation when she's younger might have been um, very Jane-ish when she was younger, um, first coming onto the social scene. Um, and so I think she may imbue herself in different ways, but I think it's because she recognized that there were so many different ways, I think, to look at the world and that her experiences were varied enough and her interactions with people were varied enough that really it caused her to think in different ways about um, what the world offered for women, what the world offered for men, the impact of society. So I, I think just the fact that Austin was just so brilliant in how she understood the world, I think manifests itself in, in various characters that way. I've always been struck by how different their family was. Um, we, we hear... We hear a number of people, and certainly we hear uh, Mr. Darcy comment regularly on the inferiority of her birth, but but they were inferior by birth and rank, but also a little bit odd. They they didn't go to town and didn't have a governess and didn't. There were uh, through the through the words of Lady Catherine when she's kind of interviewing uh, Elizabeth at, at one of the dinners, um, she kind of bears bears in on her a little bit and and in a, a really awful kind of way actually yeah. uh, but 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 she points out how how odd their family is because the father hated london and and never wanted to be away from his books in his library and the mother uh, didn't think enough of the daughter's education to get a governess and so forth it, does does that strangeness of family um, does that add to you, to the, um, I don't know, to, there, there just is a differentness and otherness mm-hmm. about the Bennets to me in this whole thing that is, I find very appealing and yeah. attractive, but, but that and must have been interesting for her to write at that time. Yeah. And I, and I think it was necessary because for Elizabeth, I think to be as independent, um, independent minded, independent in her actions as she is, I think you had to have a family that was kind of off kilter and not as traditional as some of the the families that would have surrounded them. Um, I think in Austin's you know life during that time while she was writing with the you know there was the um, the war with France going on. So many of the young men were gone. A number of her family members were living in France, coming back from France, um, and I think it was a very uncertain time in a lot of ways. And I think um, that lends itself well to creating this family who you know no sons so they don't they they don't have any of those traditional connections going on with war and things like that 
and the father just does what he wants and you kind of the expectation he doesn't know that he should be instructing his mm-hmm. wife or encouraging his wife to do certain things and so you end up with daughters who are very well read in some cases but maybe not as well read as they should have been um, as Elizabeth points out as you note to Lady Catherine but also to Catherine Bingley when they're doing their stroll around the room right. you know and she's talking about well you know I'm not as good at this as you think and not as good at that and I'm certainly not as um you know maybe a good woman or unusual woman as you as you'd like to say and she actually also says negative things about other women at that point to say none of us are really as accomplished yeah as as certain people would like to have think that we are or have a seem to be there's just no way you could be so how did Jane Austen get to be such a good writer? Did she have training? I would, well, I don't know that she would have had traditional training. I think, um, you know, she had probably the traditional training for a young woman at the time, which was more basic, but she had a father who encouraged um, his children to read, and I think opening up his um, library to them was very important. I think he did not pay, in a similar way to Mr. Bennett, a lot of attention to maybe some of the specifics of what they were reading and what they were doing. Um, But I think a lot of it was Jane was very interested, and she revised and revised and revised. And she tried out new ideas, and she would try out bits and pieces with other people. Um, But even as she was developing new novels, you know, there were certain characters that she would... Um, work with, and she might stay focused on them for a month or so, and if she felt that they had kind of run out of steam, she would shift to something else. So there are a number of her books that were started and and actually completed at different times. Um, She worked on Sense and Sensibility during some of the time she was working on uh, First Impressions, and so there was this kind of back and forth. Um, And some people have said you can see some similarities in characters, I think there are similarities because of the time frame that she's writing in. But I think because she was kind of going back and forth and she was, for lack of a better term, playing with characters so much and seeing how they might develop, I think that really revision, which as an English teacher, I love, um, (laughs) that before that would have been a common consideration, she actually spent so much time writing and rewriting and rewriting and kind of recasting things. And I think it was just her desire to really show such a real view of the world um, that led her to kind of keep going back again and again to what she was writing to make sure that it really was representative of what she wanted. So primarily she was very well read, so she had she knew what good writing looked like. Mm-hmm. And then she just spent a lot of time. Yeah. A lot of work. I think with the writing and also... Again, as I noted earlier, there was a lot of play acting. There were lo- the, the kids liked to produce plays. They did those for each other. They did those for their um, adult relatives when everyone got together. And so I think that, too, was an opportunity to kind of play Develop through. Her imagination. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned that these were published anonymously to start, and... And I presume after they achieved some commercial success, um, her name was placed on them. Was 
was the success of these novels at the time, do you think, about the fact that that they were providing this female perspective on um, life at the time and and kind of using wit and irony and other things to skewer a little bit uh, uh, many of the manor and and the landed gentry uh, a, a little bit it is is that why they would have not also put her name on it because it, it there there is a kind of a sharp Oh, there absolutely is. I mean, people who might have recognized themselves in some of the characters would have probably recognized themselves in certain characters. And so I think it definitely was part of that. Um, But I think it was the wit and the humor and just the fact that people could see themselves in these characters to some degree. There was also, I think, you know, the idea that someone like an Elizabeth Bennet could end up with someone like Fitzwilliam Darcy I think that was appealing to a lot of female readers. And we know that both in England and um, in the U.S. at the time, these kind of domestic novels, although I think Pride and Prejudice rises uh, much above that very quickly, but there was interest in more of the domestic novel and the fact that um, Austen kind of took the domestic novel and, and placed it in society and placed it in a, in a broader context, I think, um, was very important and I think was part of the reason people were very interested in in what she was doing. Um, definitely Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility were received, I, I think, the best during the time that um, she was writing and that she was publishing them. And she was very aware of the reviews um, of those books and would often comment to Cassandra or to her niece's um, or her, her niece and nephews about what people were writing and, and where she thought they were wrong or where she thought they were right. Um, and she, she was a harsh critic of her own work. She wasn't as happy with some of the later books. And in some cases, she felt that people didn't understand them as well or that the critic was expecting too much of another Pride and Prejudice. Um, and so uh, I, I think... Um, you know, it, it just was really good writing, but it was still that interest in kind of seeing people skewered, also seeing the romance, seeing that, you know, the plucky girl gets the man in the end. I, I have to think there were quite a few women who appreciated that aspect well, of it. We were we started this, um, or have had, uh, during the Summer Book Club, we discussed Hamlet, which, you know, I, I made the old tired joke about, you know, I don't, I don't like Shakespeare because all he does is writing cliches, and and to a certain extent, Pride and Prejudice is that way too. the The girl meets boy, girl hates boy. Girl, I mean, the, the, she sort of set what would be two hundred years of romantic comedy uh, up for the rest of us to enjoy. Uh, and this particular book, it seems to me, has just been astonishingly influential mm-hmm. uh, I mean strictly from that standpoint that not not even taking into consideration how great the writing was and that that's why we keep coming back to it and why everything else is sort of a pale Xerox copy yeah. of that but but still she did so well she wrote so well that that interaction between um, men and women and I I should share this with you I was I was in a theater in Washington DC when the Kira Knightley version of the movie came out and uh, it was very funny to me because I was 
there singing and I didn't have anything to do in the afternoon so I went to the theater and there were 300 women and me <laughs> in this movie theater seeing this movie and and I was there watching it and enjoying it very much but as I was walking out I got behind a group of women who had tears streaming down their faces and the the essentially the content of their conversation was where's where is my Mr. Darcy yeah. where is my Mr. Darcy and and I just I was struck again at how um how impactful just the romantic part of mm -hmm. that story uh, really is. The love between those two characters is very, very strong. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, if uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, Pride and Prejudice is one of the most, um, well, is one of the plots that's most used. And there are so many books out, both young adult, uh, adult contemporary that go back to the whole premise of Pride and Prejudice, even make mention of it, and then proceed to give us, you know, the the, the 2018 version of it That's and the right. 2014 version of it. Yeah. And, of course, none of them are as strong as the original. But it is interesting how, you know, it, it just lasts. And... Um, and so, some of the listeners have read this and um, some of them haven't. So what would be what would be your number one reason to encourage a person today to read this novel that's more than 200 years old? I think again I would say the writing is so is so fabulous in terms of when it's funny it is so funny when it's um, paying attention to emotional detail it's just so right there when it's basically cutting someone down, who deserves to be cut down, but it's done so <laughs> elegantly that you can just kind of appreciate it and you get that picture in your mind. Um, there's just so many things with the writing of it that works, but I think also the care that she puts into the development of the main characters is so important. And you really do feel like you have a great sense of who Elizabeth and Fitzwilliam are by the end of the book. And what's always been so important to me is you don't have to find out about certain things through anything gratuitous. It's all so beautifully laid out. The words chosen are chosen for the maximum effect. There's no wasted um, language in this book. It's just such a perfect combination of word, idea, plot, character development. It's everything you want a novel to be. And it's, I don't know, it just gives you a great feeling when you get to the end and realize that um, two people who you've come to root for kind of see their own truths by the end. And it's, um, it, I just think that's what's so wonderful about it. If um, we talked a little bit about this at the beginning of our conversation, that, you know, the first impressions, then Pride and Prejudice, and what's kind of meant by that perhaps. But if Jane Austen was here, and we could ask her the question, what was your point? Is there, a, is there beyond the great story, is there a point of the story? What do you think she would say? You know, I mean, I've read a number of different things about her. I, I think there's a part of me that would say, that she would say, you know, what you took from this is meaningful because of, of how it either 
makes you think about something or how it makes you look at society or how it makes you reevaluate yourself. Um, I think she was one of those people who was very good at holding the mirror up to people, including herself, and saying, what do you see and why do you see it? And I think um, part of Pride and Prejudice is to get us to think about why we have certain attitudes, why we have certain feelings, why we do things in a certain way, and to get us to think about it. And um, I, I think for me, that's, that's, again, one of the kind of treasured pieces of Pride and Prejudice for me, that I think it's a, it's a, it's a mirror that helps us see better. It certainly helped me see some things um, better <laughs> over the years, different times I've read it. And I think that's, I'd like to think that's part of what she was doing in giving us such a great book like Pride and Prejudice. Is the book more popular today than it was 200 years ago? I would say it probably is. And, and again, um, I think for a number of reasons, I mean, I think it was popular back then because it was very different than most um, people, probably primarily women, had seen before. I think today, because of the films, because of the variations on it, you know, so many cultures have taken Pride and Prejudice and made it their own. Um, there's my daughter's favorite variation on this is Bride and Prejudice, which is set in <laughs> India, and it is hilarious, and it's got all the Bollywood dances and yep. singing and everything else. Um, but I think different cultures have taken it and embraced it in their own ways and made it their own. And I think in that sense, it is even more popular than she would have ever or could have ever imagined. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, it shows up on social media still. So I just think with everything that we have to let people know about it, more people know about Pride and Prejudice. And if they haven't read it yet, they definitely should. Yeah, we, we have the advantage today over 200 years ago in that this is a story about 200 years ago. Yeah, that's true. It, back then it was a story about their day. Yeah. And we're so fascinated with that part of our history. It is fun to read about. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a fascinating time. Everybody's looking for a Lizzie or a Mr. Darcy. They are. And, and that's probably the one thing where, again, they've got to look in that mirror and go, I've got to look for my own variation of Mr. Darcy because there is only one Mr. Darcy and he's on the pages of a book. Um, <laughs> well, this, is, this has been really fun. And um, really fun to revisit this book. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah you, you said that one of the reasons why it's so popular today is because of all the movies, but the movies are because it's so popular. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, the movies are a, a, a result of its popularity, not a creator of its popularity. Right. I think they go hand in hand, yeah. You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. We've had as our guest in studio today, Dr. Jean Boreen, and we've been discussing Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. If you haven't read this book, then shame on you and get started now. <laughs> we'll be back to our regular podcast once a week coming up very, very soon, shortly after the Labor Day weekend. Until then, thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu 
forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu.